Howdy, 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 ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 9 of the Fight Figures podcast. We're just coming off of UFC Austin. We're also coming off of the match. We're coming off of Tension Nasakawa taken on Takaru. I... Mm, I probably... I'll talk about that at the end. Because honestly, this UFC Austin card was exceptional. And we're not even going to fuck around with the main event for for particularly long because whilst I thought it was a very technically sound fight, I did really quite enjoy it. I just honestly think we're we're gonna we're just gonna go through the the card from from bottom to the top. I'll briefly say just the main event. I thought Josh Emmett doing great work slipping. His head movement looked really sharp. I really liked I really liked the faint work from Calvin Cater. The way that he was stitching in the feints with the jabs, really effective. He was circling out quite effectively. Josh Emmer wasn't able to take advantage of the of the fact that Calvin Cater covers up as much as I thought he probably would have been able to. Because, you know, you watch the Max Holloway fight and there are just so many combinations where Holloway's getting off four punches at a time and Cater puts up the high guard to take these shots. And I guess his game plan is, I'll take the shots on the guard and then I'm going to swing back with, with a left hooker. I'm going to back him up with some kind of weapon. I'm going to show him the jab and, and he's going to get, you know, he's he's going to get disheartened and he's not going to want to step in. Obviously, that's not what happened. Max Holloway stepped in regardless. So... Maybe Josh Emmett just assumed that he would be able to get those shots off and have success. Alas, no. Uh, he he didn't actually have that much success. He was trying to land right hooks around the guard. Landed a few here and there, but for the most part, yeah. Calvin Cater was, wasn't touched that much and, and jabbed the shit out of Josh Emmett. Yeah, it just kind of, it was a fight that I thought would have had a little bit more pizzazz, a little bit more to it, but it didn't really. And it was on a card where there was a ridiculous amount of finishes. So it just doesn't really stand out amongst the rest of the fights. So fuck it. Let's just let's just talk about all the other things. Because and then we're gonna talk about it for ages. We're gonna talk about each individual fight, but yeah, let's go through them. Yeah, so our first up in the evening was Roman Delize taking on Kyle Decors. Roman Delize is a bit of an up and down kind of fighter. I thought coming into the UFC, he'd looked pretty decent on the regional scene, and then he had a pretty good knockout, if I recall correctly, in his... Was it a knockout? Yeah, it was um, the Figueredo Benavides 2 card in Abu Dhabi. He had that TKO over Kadis Ibragamov. Ibragamov? Ah, oh, fucking jeez. I apologize. And then he had that split decision with John Allen. That fight kind of put me off of him, because I thought he was relatively inactive... Basically relied relied quite a bit off of his rear leg. Didn't really have a whole lot of didn't have a whole lot of variety in his game. I thought, and then he lost that that unanimous decision to Trevin Giles. And you know, most recently he had defeated Staropoli by decision. But ultimately, I, I don't think he looked incredibly impressive. And he came into this fight with Kyle Decor's a pretty significant underdog, I believe. I think he was one of the bigger underdogs on the card. And, I mean, reasonable enough. Decors had... Uh, he's coming off of that win over Jamie Pickett back in February. 
has, I think, fought a higher level of competition than Delizze. And so they came into this fight with Southpaw versus Orthodox because Decor is Southpaw. And then immediately, straight out the gates, I mean, it was the issue in the Kevin Holland fight, Decor's and Holland had a clash of heads, and that led, that led to a no contest. But, what's it called? Yeah, this, this fight immediately had a headbutt. Immediately had a headbutt. And I think it was primarily... Yeah, it felt primarily like Dalidze's fault because it was clear from the get-go that he wanted to strike on the inside coming out of the clinch. And they came out of the clinch within the first, like, 10 seconds. Uh, they went in. That's when the head the headbutt occurred. They go into the clinch, and Dalidze's immediately fighting for underhooks and then trying to come out with a left hook. And, you know, the fight gets stopped for a second by Mike Beltran the referee, and then when it gets restarted, same kind of thing happens, they enter the clinch, Delize misses with a right hook, exiting the clinch, and then he lands with the left hook, and that's what drops Decor's, and then Delize is able to frame on the head, and finishes with a, a really sexy knee, a really sexy knee, that, uh, honestly, very impressive finish, very impressive finish from Mr. Delize, I'm just re-watching it here, yeah, he doesn't even look like he frames on the face or anything. It's it's body lock. He's got double underhooks, and he's off to Decor's side. The kind of position where you you'd put up those knees, but you don't actually expect to get anything off of them. But he puts one up, puts the left knee up. He's got inside foot placement. He's able to get the height on it. Just puts Decor's down. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That was a good performance from Roman Delite. Still don't think he's super high level, but shit, impressive win. Then we had probably, I mean, one of the best performances of the night. Phil Hawes just def- beat the shit out of Deron Wynn. I was about to try and sugarcoat it. I was about to try and, you know, embellish it. Ultimately, the fact of the matter is, he beat the shit out of out of Deron Wynn. I don't believe Wynn had fought in a little while. I'm just having a look at his Wikipedia page. Yeah, his last fight was in December of 2020, uh, back on the same card that Stephen Thompson fought Jeff Neal, so it gives you a real indication how long it's been. And that was, a, that was a unanimous decision victory over Arroyo, who I personally can't even remember that fight, but prior to that he had uh, he had a banger with, particularly his, his fight with Eric Spicely, that was a banger, that was his UFC debut, sensational fight from from win, and then he went on a two-fight losing streak, he lost the split decision to Darren Stewart, and then he got submitted by Gerald Mearshart in one of those classic Mearshart fights where you're like, I don't understand how he wins, given his, his lackluster stand-up, but fuck me, he just did, yeah, weird fight, Darren wins a weird fighter, he he feels like the discount version of Daniel Cormier because he is so short, his reach is, is it's not great. But he is, he is in a lower weight class than DC obviously was. DC fought up at heavyweight. Daron's fighting at middleweight. Uh, it's just it doesn't feel like he does the same things as good as DC. He doesn't he doesn't use the mummy guard as effectively. His right hook is actually, it's not bad. It's pretty good. I thought there were a few points in this fight where his right hook looked really solid. But it's not a Daniel Cormier right hook. And he's got good work off of the single-collar tie. He does that DC, you know, leans over the rear leg and then extends the lead hand, grabs a single-collar tie with the lead hand, and then he'll he'll spam rear hand uppercuts or he'll use 
that single collar tie to draw his opponent into the hook, into the rear hook. And, yeah, again, I reiterate, same thing. Doesn't do it as good as Daniel Cormier. That's kind of the recurring theme. But, yeah, this was just a Phil Hawes masterpiece. I think he just recognized he has an extensive advantage in terms of the reach, in terms of just his ability to... Oh, his, his fundamental striking skills are just better than wins. Has a very nice jab. And, I mean, we've seen it on a, on a couple of occasions. He looked really good in his most recent fight back in two, November of 2021 against Chris Curtis. That was UFC 268. I thought he looked really good up until the point where he got finished. <laughs> and that was Chris Curtis's UFC debut. Chris Curtis had been shopping around all over the place. Then finally makes it to the UFC was facing some real issues with uh, with Phil Horse, who has a gorgeous jab, really lengthy with his right hand, and as we saw in this fight, great elbows, uh, a good kicking game. Yeah, just just kind of got caught, just started slacking a little bit and, and got caught out in that fight. This fight, he didn't get caught out. There were a few points where I was like, ooh, this isn't looking great. Because <laughs> uh, Wynn was able to about three minutes into the second round, was able to kind of rally back and, and force a little bit of a comeback. A little bit. Just started dirtying up exchanges, reaching for the hands, and and just not allowing Phil to get off his jab and his, his jab cross as effectively as he was earlier on in the fight. But still, it was, it was the elbow offense from Phil Hawes that proved the difference maker. Early on in the fight, it was really funny, though, how Phil just opens up. He opens up with, like, three, four jabs in a row, and every single one of them is the same thing. There were, there were two in particular, one after the other, with, like, uh, within the space of about five seconds. Phil Hawes throws this jab, lands, and Deron swings back a counter-left hook, completely misses. His reach deficit becomes incredibly apparent at this point, and then the same thing happens immediately after. Phil Hawes throws the jab, counter-left hook misses, and you're just sitting there going, how's Daron Wynn going to deal with this? And the answer is, he didn't. Yeah, and then it was a 3-2. The 3-2 the started proving an issue for Wynn. Phil Hawes was getting off good, effective work with his jab, and I think at some point he just realized, hey, yes, my jab is my lengthiest weapon, but Daron Wynn is short enough and has a reach that is inconsequential enough that I can throw the left hook, and I'm still I'm still completely out of range. It's basically a jab in this context. How good? And that's exactly what he did. He actually knocked Daron down initially with a rear elbow, and that was a precursor to a lot of rear elbows. I thought he was just doing a sensational job with elbows of all kinds. There were step-in-lead elbows, you know, up, up elbows. There was some elbows around the guard when he was stepping in. He was kind of doing Daron Wynn's thing back to him. Daron Wynn's going for the mummy guard and trying to come around the side with, with hooks and and trying to cause damage that way, looking for the rear hand uppercut off of the single collar tie. And it's that position that Phil Hawes actually had a lot of success. He was able to get off a lot of elbows around the guard of Wynn and cause a lot of damage. Really impressive. And then about half, well, not halfway, I'd say a, a minute or so into the second round, he starts throwing kicks and starts throwing these these really snappy front kicks down the middle with the rear and the front leg. And yeah, again, causing just a whole lot of issues for Darren Wynn. He just basically couldn't get in. 
There was one point where Darren Wynn did throw a left hook into an inside low kick. That was really cool. I always love same side attacks, and I always love when it's not the jab leading the same side attack, but a lead hook. Because obviously, with a lead hook, you kind of got it. You've got to swing your hips all the way into that shot. Or, I mean, it's mixed martial arts, so you don't swing your hips in as much as you would in boxing. But you still have to commit your body weight to that that movement. And as such, when you throw the inside low kick after the lead hook. It's like you're falling into the inside low kick. It's a really weird shot. But he threw it and it landed. It landed awkwardly. Don't get me wrong. But it landed nonetheless. So that was interesting. But yeah, the vast majority of this fight was Darren Wynn getting the piss beaten out of him. And then afterwards, and then afterwards, Phil Hawes starts having words with Daniel Cormier. I don't know exactly what was said. I just basically saw Daniel Cormier saying, I don't pick fights. I don't pick fights. And then Herb Dean having to hold him back. And it's like, what are you? What is happening? Dude, you retired. You retired. You're not the heavyweight champion anymore. Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? And then they have a relatively cordial, cordial uh, discussion in the post-fight interview. And it was just really awkward. Because I'm just sitting there going, this is a classic example of two people who don't like each other at work, but they have to work with each other. They've been put in together on the group project, and they've got no other choice but to to deal with one another's company. Yeah, so that was pretty funny. I really enjoyed that. Then the former WEC Bantamweight champion, our boy Eddie Wineland, who looks like someone straight out of the 1880s in terms of his visual aesthetic. Always has, always will. Came out and made us all really fucking sad. Because he was fighting Cody Stamen. And it was one of those fights where it's like, I know Stamen deserves a step down in competition. Because he's been he's been fighting the best in the business for a number of years now. And he's kind of struggled. He's had some had some ups and downs. He had that loss to Saeed Namagomedov at UFC 270 earlier on this year. And that that was just the third loss in a row for him. He, he lost to Jimmy Rivera in... Uh, a decent fight, but a fight that I thought Rivera clearly won. And then he lost to Marab Balashvili. That was another unanimous decision. And then he loses to Magomedov by guillotine in 47 seconds. So early on in that fight. And so he, it was kind of time that he, he got an opportunity to step down in competition and fight someone probably not as high up there. But jeez, man, really? You're going to give him Eddie fucking Wineland? Ugh. Wineland's just been so up and down over the past few years. Yeah, I mean, he his last win streak, I mean, consecutive wins, was against Frankie Sayans and uh, Mizugaki back in, that was in 2016. The Mizugaki win was December of 2016 on the, on the Van Zandt-Michelle Waterson card. Y'all remember that card? That's how long it's been since Eddie Wineland had consecutive victories. And then he immediately lost two to John Dodson, Alejandro Perez, got a KO over Gregory Popov. And Is Popov even still in the UFC? Yeah, since then, he's now currently on a, on a three-fight losing streak subsequent to this loss. He got KO'd by Sean O'Malley in that that quite iconic overhand, right where, he, where O'Malley faints the rear hand up at the cut and then goes with the overhand instead, or the straight right, whatever you want to call it. Then he lost to Castaneda, and now he's lost to Stamen, and he loses in a minute, in a minute flat. There was a good kick catch from Stamen straight out the gates, in, and he immediately fired back with a counter kick, counter outside low kick, and they're just kind of feeling each other, doing their own thing. And then Cody comes in with a jab cross, and it doesn't even look like he hits 
I'm watching it now, just just for as a point of visual reference. He goes with a jab and then throws a right hand. It doesn't even look like he hits Wineland cleanly. Maybe it's my frame rate being atrocious. Shout out UFC Fight Pass for being a really shit video player. But yeah, it looks like he, he barely even clips him over the year. But he clearly does because Wineland goes skating at that point and Stamen just starts flurrying and just and finishes the fight off. It's disappointing and I'm not having a fun time watching Eddie Wineland get the shit beaten out of him by by some decent guys. Sean O'Malley and Cody Stamen are really, really good fighters who, I, I can't remember how old Cody Stamen is. How old is he? 32. So he's, he's getting up there a little bit, but he's still, I'd say he's on the, the down, on the on the decline, but still kind of technically in his prime. Well, Wineland's fucking 37 years old. He's old, man. He's been in the game for so long. Ugh. Not enjoyable watching someone like that get punked in just under a minute. So yeah, that's that. Maria Oliveira defeated Gloria DePaula via split decision in a fairly contentious fight that I didn't really care that much for. There were some interesting things here, but they were mainly concerned with what people weren't doing as opposed to what people actually were doing. The fuck-ups were more significant than what was what was being done correctly. Maria Oliveira, man. I, I really do like her I do like her attitude. I like the fact that she's quite an intense competitor. I like the fact that she's constantly throwing, that her volume is incredibly high. I mean, when we're talking about the women's divisions, particularly the the much lighter women's divisions, volume is gonna be such a significant factor. It's gonna it's gonna win you fights. Just pure volume doesn't have to be effective volume it just needs to be thrown out there because it's very unlikely or it's not very unlikely nowadays it's it it's starting to become more common but there are a lot of female fighters who don't finish well they aren't great finishers and as such if you're a good volume striker the judge is going to look favorably on that if if neither of you are even close to finishing one another then whoever's landing more frequently is likely going to get the nod Let's be honest. So yeah, I like the fact that she was constantly throwing, but Jesus, man. So much of that offense was just... It could have been so much more effective than it it was. She didn't look like she had a lot of power, so I'm not suggesting that she should have just gone out there and knocked her opponent out, because it's more difficult than that. It's a little more nuanced than that. But there were a lot of scenarios where she's throwing 10-punch combinations just running straight forward, and she isn't... She isn't... like, she's shifting forward with each individual strike, but she's not moving off to the side. It's not like she's throwing three or four punches in a row, straight down the middle, get Gloria DePaula moving backwards in a straight line, and then she steps off to the side, and then throws a straight right. It wasn't like anything like that. It was just moving forward with five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten punches in a row, just moving in a straight line, and... A lot of the time, Oliveira was on the back foot. A lot of the time, she was getting pushed back by Gloria, by her opponent. And because of this, it gave her opponent so much space to move into. Yeah, it just... She couldn't really cut off. It it wasn't like she was throwing a 10-punch combination and she was ending up in a position where she had her opponent, where she had DePaula on the fence because she what what ended up happening was Maria Oliveira was 
throwing these combinations from the cage, from the fence, and she was pushing DePaula back, but she would only push her back as far as, like, the middle of the octagon. And then she would end up on the back foot again, and she'd have to go back to go have to go back to scaling the 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 cage and not scaling it as in vertically but just moving around on the cage dealing with Gloria DePaula whose cage cutting herself wasn't that great she wasn't countering the fact that Maria Oliveira was coming in on straight lines she wasn't countering that effectively I think Dean Thomas said in the middle of the fight she should be using a check hook and there are a lot of times where I just I listen to Dean Thomas and I'm like eh you're not really adding that much to this this broadcast, you're not adding that much to this commentary booth, you're kind of just saying the obvious points, but that was, I think, a very, I think that was a very good point, like, yes, she should have been using check hooks, she should have been using rear hand uppercuts, she should have, I mean, it was, there were a lot of times where I thought it was quite obvious when Maria Oliveira was going to be stepping in and throwing in combination, and I just thought Gloria DePaula in some of those scenarios, should have been putting up tapes, should have been creating a blockade, should have been jabbing to the body, maybe. Oh, not jabbing to the body so much, but maybe throwing the straight right to the body. We'll talk about the jabbing to the body in in a bit, because we're going to be talking about some Australian boxing matches that uh, that I caught the other night. But yeah, I'm just... I thought it was a little bit frustrating how little adaptation there was from each individual. There was some interesting grappling. Like, right at the end of the fight... Uh, Gloria DePaula goes for uh, Haragoshi, you know, your classic wizard throw. Though you got a wizard on one side and you step over to the far leg and you kick it out and, and you hip toss him. It's a staple in women's mixed martial arts, but it is very funny when it gets counted. And it got counted successfully by Maria Oliveira. Maria hooked the leg, kicking her leg out. She hooked it and, and like almost took the back, but she ended up on bottom. It's like she couldn't hold the leg effectively enough. So she ended up in, in bottom. I don't think... Uh, did she end up in half guard? Yeah, it was just a weird situation where I think she probably should have been able to take the back because she'd, she'd stood her ground. She had control of a leg. She'd hooked a leg. She had the opportunity to take the back, and yet she ended up on her back. She ended up finishing the fight on bottom. It was just a weird scenario. And there were a few times where... <laughs> where Maria Oliveira is on top of is on top of Gloria DePaula, and she backs up, and you know that that scenario where one fighter clearly wants to stand, another fighter isn't willing to try and perform a tactical stand-up because they're scared about getting hit whilst they're standing up, and so they, they kind of come to an impasse where the, the referee has to step in and stand one fighter up, and then they return to striking uh, both on relatively equal footing. So you know that scenario, everyone knows that scenario, it happens in fights all the time. Yeah, the referee went to step in because it clearly looked like Maria Oliveira was stepping back to allow this fight to continue standing. And then she pushed the referee away. She's like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. And then, like, it's like she was fainting it. Like, oh, yeah, I'm backing up to allow the referee to step forward. Actually, no, I want to beat the shit out of you while you're trying to stand up. That's what it looked like. It was so fucking funny. And then she did it again right at the end of the fight, in, in the latter stages of the third round. It was really odd. I was confused by that. It was very funny, though. Also, the referee, uh, I can't... I'm just looking at it now. The referee was Kerry Hatley. He has a weird thing. What does he say? He said something at the beginning of the fight. You know when they do their, all right, red corner, you ready? Blue corner, you ready? I don't know, Big John used to say, let's get it on or whatever. Yeah, Kerry Hatley was like, this is what you've all been... This is what you've been working for. He said that at the beginning of the fight. 
like, dude, I don't need you to pump me up. I don't need you to, I don't need you to get my head in the game or anything. I've just been warming up for like two fucking hours straight. I'm good to go. I'm in front of thousands of people right now. My, my heart's already pumping. Let's just get to it. I thought it was pretty funny though. Just him being like, this is what you've been working towards. Like, bro, the commentary boots right there. That's their job. They're meant to be the ones who build up hype. You don't need to do that. Whatever. Yeah, that was funny. And then the boy, the boy himself, Hikaru Hamosh, one of my favorite fighters to watch. He is so much fun to watch. He has done so much over the years that has made me go, wow, I like you a lot. He had that fight with Kong a couple of years ago where he showcased, that was just beautiful, beautiful, really clean striking on the outside. He had that brutal spinning elbow knockout of, what's his name, Ayman Zahabi back in Back in 2017, UFC 217, that was a sensational finish. Yeah, he's just, he's had some sensational performances. Had a, had a few setbacks here and there. Lost to Saeed Namagomedov back in 2019. Lost to Laurent Murphy in 2020. You know, lost to Takugov. Yeah, but I don't really care. He's just such an incredibly exciting fighter. He's just an incredibly exciting fighter to watch, and I will never, I will try not to miss one of his fights if I, if I can... If I have a say in it. And he put on a sensational performance. Didn't didn't have to do much. He's fighting Danny Chavez here. Who's not cream of the crop. But also this was Harmosh coming up to featherweight. I believe this was his featherweight debut. He's always looked like a big cut fighter for bantamweight. I thought, you know, a couple of years ago, back at that, that, that Kong fight, they both looked jacked as shit. And I was thinking to myself, how do these motherfuckers make bantamweight it's crazy to me and then he's he's moved up to featherweight and he was doing some really nice stuff here he was kind of baiting he was baiting Chavez to move out to his left the whole time he's throwing jabs and he's throwing them to he's throwing them a lot more to the right than he probably should be and it is it's it's doing exactly what he intends it to do it's it's forcing Chavez to move out to, and this is from Hamosh's perspective, it's forcing Chavez to move out to the left, and that's moving into the spinning shots, and and he was coming out, and he was throwing stuff, focusing on the left-hand side from the get-go, he threw a jumping switch kick immediately, basically, and he was throwing spinning heel kicks from the get-go, I mean, that's that's Bacato Hamosh in a nutshell, he has really clean striking on the outside, absolutely, but he does love a good spin, and yeah, he just landed a brutal, he threw, throws a jab, and it looks like, oh, he missed that, that shot, he's, you know, he's, he's letting Chavez off the hook, Chavez is going to move off, is going to, going to escape, Chavez actually shows some decent lateral movement, kind of faints in both directions immediately before the shot, and then yeah, Hamosh goes for the jab, and it looks like he's just completely missing. And then he goes, for, <laughs> he goes for a spinning elbow behind it, and just rocks Chavez's world. Chavez is completely out of it the second he lands. Referee, I think Mike Beltran steps in. But I mean, but boom, that's the end of the fight. Really impressive victory by by Hakata Hamosh. Love to see him having success up at the featherweight division. He he still looked quite big against Chavez, even though this is a weight class up. He still looked good, solid. Thick, solid, tight, you know, <laughs> all those adjectives. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see him up at featherweight. I think he will obviously have some issues with some of these bigger guys because there are some featherweights who get fucking massive. But it is good to see him 
it's good to see him in the wing column any day of the week. But yeah, this one was this one was very impressive. Very impressed with Harmosh here. And then we had a really sad fight in the form of Court McGee getting knocked the fuck out in the first round, minute and a half in by Jeremiah Wells, who you'll know from his victory over Blood Diamond back at UFC 271, that that fight where he was running around the outside of the octagon and then seemed to trip on the octagon and then Blood Diamond, like, fl- not flurries in on him, but he, he crowds in on him and then immediately gets caught up in the grappling and Jeremiah was able to get the rear naked choke just before the end of the first round. Yeah, so we, we got to see a little more striking out of Jeremiah Wells on this occasion, and it wasn't that pretty, but he was able to get off. It was a one-two, and then he followed up with this this wide-arching left hook, and it dropped Kader. It put him out. Yeah. Kader? Did I just say Kader? Court. Court McGee. He put Mr. McGee out, and he was stiff as a board. I didn't like seeing it because I don't mind Court McGee. Court McGee's an interesting cat. I mean, he's gone on record very publicly and talked about how, yeah, I, you know, I had to get over a drug addiction. I had some really dark days, but you know, I was able to muscle through them. I was able to push through them, and and I am a, I am better on the other side of those struggles. And then watching him get flatlined by Jeremiah Wells in a minute and a half is not fun, you know. That kind of context, it it connects you a bit to a fighter, and then watching them get absolutely destroyed is uh, it's not that fun. So, yeah, there was that. Now let's talk about someone who really surprised me, and I believe this was her first fight in the UFC. Yes, it was. Natalia Silva, she defeated Jasmine Juice Jastavicious, Jastavicious, that's the one, via decision. And it was just an incredibly impressive fight. There were so many things that really impressed me in this matchup. First and foremost, her speed with the switch kick. Not just to the body or to the or to the legs. You know, I think the, who are the people we refer to when we're talking about fast switch kicks? You know, your Edson Barbosas, uh, your Hafael Fiziev, like Fiziev, that's the one. Those guys have incredibly fast switch kicks, but I find mainly to the body, whereas... Natalia Silva really showcased an incredibly fast switch kick to the head, and I think that's quite impressive. There were a couple of times where she she threw it like two or three times in a row, and it was fast. It was causing a lot of issues for Jastavicius. There was one point in the first round where I was really impressed. It didn't land, but it was a combination that I thought was really tricky, a combination that I myself don't throw as much as I probably should, but it was a straight right. And so the stray right is going to probably force your opponent to pull back, whatever. And then you fade away and you come with the left hook. And the left hook is there to counter your opponent's counter. Because what's going to happen when you throw the right hand? Your opponent's probably going to come back with a shot of their own. So the left hook, it was like this fade away left hook that she threw just to, to catch Jastavicius if she was stepping in. And then she throws up a, a switch kick to the head off of that that left hook. Similar to what we were talking about with Deron Wynn when he threw the left hook into the inside low kick, except this time it was a fucking switch kick to the head off of that left hook. And I just thought it was so good. There are so many people that you'll catch sleeping with that kind of combination. You don't see that a lot in mixed martial arts. You see it every now and again in, in Muay Thai. You see it in kickboxing. You see it in karate quite a bit, actually, where, where the fighting plane is a lot more linear, a lot more back and forth. You'll find that those kind of those kind of techniques catching guys with high kicks after 
you've finished with your your hands as you're fading away, you'll find that that is a little more common. But you don't see it a whole lot in, in mixed martial arts as much, and certainly not in, certainly not in the UFC. I just thought it was a sensational combination. Didn't land, but got fucking close. And there was there was a lot of stuff that she was landing really effectively with. She was on the back foot the vast majority of the time. Her lateral movement seemed sensational. In the third round, she was kind of relying on it because Jastavicius still had quite a bit of gas in that third round. And Natalia Silva had been throwing quite consistently for two straight rounds in a row. And so it gets to about two and a half minutes into the third round and she just starts like fainting left, right, left, right, left, right, just trying to cause confusion and not allow Jastavicius to, to force her up against the cage and create a grappling exchange. But when they, when they were grappling, I thought Natalia Silva was doing a sensational job. She had, there was one point where she landed like three, uh, she landed three wizard hip throws in a row, wizard wizard tosses in a row, and it was, it was very funny. <laughs> like, ah, women's MMA. But no, it, the timing on those was really good. There was one bit of takedown defense that I thought was very impressive. She was defending upper body takedowns quite effectively throughout the entire course of the fight. And there was a point where Jasmine Justavisius drops down for a single leg. I don't know whether it was a single leg intentionally or whether it was just fed to her. I, I initially thought, based on the fact that it looked like Natalia Silva was feeding the single leg, I thought that she would have been training with Andre Pedneris and that team there, Nova Junia, because... Like, that's Jose Aldo's game to a T. But, no, she trains with a team called uh, Team Borcha. They're also in Brazil. And, yeah, so she was feeding the single leg, and Jastavicius goes in for the takedown, and it's like, uh, you know how you put your leg, or you, you try, when you're going for a single leg, you try and capture your opponent's leg in between your legs, and then you can run the pipe. Then you can you can pull back and you can elevate the leg or whatever. But you, you generally try and put the, the foot or the leg in between your own to control it. Yeah, it's like Natalia Silva used that as a butterfly hook, like a standing butterfly hook, and was able to elevate Jasmine Justavicius off of that, that butterfly hook. It was really impressive. I can't remember whether she had a wizard, but I'd, I'd, I'd guess she did. I'd assume she would have, because... She was able to get some elevation. She was able to... Jastavicius ended up on the bottom, I believe. And that was just off of that that butterfly hook, that standing butterfly hook. So you'd, you'd assume that for the elevation that she got, you, you'd have to have a wizard or something. You'd have to be able to throw like that. But I don't know. Yeah, all in all, Natalia Silva looked fucking sensational. I came away from this fight thinking to myself... Holy shit. This chick I am genuinely going to watch out for. Because striking speed, sensational. Again, I reiterate, a lot of pulling back at the hips. This was the the, the kind of individual that Oliveira wanted earlier on in the night when she got DePaula. And DePaula was, you know, going back in a straight line. But but she was in the middle of the octagon. You know, if if you match up Natalia Silva with Oliveira, what you get is is probably N- Natalia Silva on the outside, and she's getting pumped with like ten punch combinations by Oliveira. Silva is sorry, she's getting a bunch of combinations thrown at her, but she just doesn't have the space to move out. Yeah, so th- I think that's the kind of fight that Oliveira earlier on in the night probably wanted. She wanted to be on the front foot and be able to push someone up against the fence and take advantage of that lack of space. But uh, Jasmine Justavicius didn't really 
I've, I've been saying both of her names, her, her first and her last name, over and over again. Basically just to build it into my head, because otherwise I'll just keep fucking up the name. So I just I just keep saying Jasmine Jastavicius, you know? So I apologize for that, but yeah. Natalia Silva, uh, yeah, like I said, against someone who's better at working in combination, she might have a few issues just pulling back at the hip the way that she did, the hips the way that she did throughout the course of this fight, but... In this context, worked really, really well for her. She had some really nice... She doubled up on the left hook earlier on in the first round, and at, I think she sat down just the vicious about a minute and a half in with that doubled-up left hook. So her fadeaway check hook, really nice. What Luke Rockhold wishes he had for a left hook, for a check hook, sorry. Yeah, it, really impressive stuff. Watch out for this girl. Yep. Then there was our boy, our boy, Adrian Yanez, the man I made a video about. I made a video about his fight with Randy Costa a little while back and talked about how both of them just showcased such incredible skills, some really interesting dynamic components to their game. Uh, but realistically, the vast majority of that video was basically just jerking off to Adrian Yanez's striking because, oh my God, he is such a fun guy to watch fight. And, oh, Jesus Christ. This was such a satisfying performance. Tony Kelly's been been talking some shit and you know he's a bit of an anti-masker not a huge fan of tony kelly <laughs> but it, that wasn't you know that wasn't why i was excited to watch this fight it wasn't like oh yay i can't wait for yanez to you know deliver the karma Nah, it wasn't about that it was ultimately just adrian yanez is probably in my opinion the most exciting talent in this division and this is probably my favorite division in the UFC. I understand the lightweight division is incredibly stacked as well. Obviously, the name power in that division is insane, but there are just so many good fights that you can make out of the bantamweight division. So many of them. And Adrian Yanez is, in my opinion, probably the most exciting fighter in terms of potential for that division. I think he could genuinely go to the championship. We talked about it in that video that I released a couple of, uh, I released a little while back. I, I stand by it. And this performance just, I think, it continued to reinforce that notion that he is ready to go up. He's ready to go up in competition. We've been seeing it since his fight in the Contender Series, since you know he fought Gustavo Lopez and those those brutal counter hooks that he was showing against Lopez. The the gorgeous bodywork that he was showcasing against Randy Costa in the second round of their fight. You know, I think the the adaptations that we saw in his most recent fight which was against, who, what's his name? <laughs> I've forgotten who he fought most for, Davey Grant, that was it, that was uh, late last year, it's been a little while actually, because he was on a pretty decent run, he fought Gustavo Lopez in March of last year, fought Randy Costa in July of last year, and then he fought Grant in November of 2021, and now it's been, it's been, what, seven months since he was able to, to fight, so it's been a bit of a, a layoff for Yanez relative to his previous activity, but damn, man, did he make it count. He came out in front of H-Town. He came out in front of the hometown, and he delivered absolutely 100%. Sensational performance. From the get-go, we were seeing him catch the 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 open side body kick because Tony Kelly was southpaw in this fight, so he's throwing the, the naked open side body kick with the left leg, and Yanez is catching it with his... Uh, would, it would be his lead hand, wouldn't it? He's catching it across his body, and then scooping and carrying the kick across his body. So he's catching with his left hand, 
and he's bringing it across to his left side and then dropping the leg and then going with the counter left hook. It happened about three times in the first like two minutes, and then it just kept happening. I think I think I counted five instances where Tony Kelly threw that body kick and immediately got countered with the left hook. And I'm just think I was sitting there going, "What are you doing, dude? I'm not rooting for you right now. I am rooting for Adrian Yanez because I think he has an incredibly high ceiling, but." I'm still rooting for you to not make dumb fuck mistakes. If something hasn't worked for you four consecutive times, don't try it again without a different setup. Like, it, it's not like he, he went for jab, cross, body kick. No, he was throwing a naked left body kick time and time again. There wasn't any switch up to the setup. It was just the same thing over and over again. He kept getting counted in the exact same way. And it was just frustrating to watch in that regard. But Yanez just, you know, had had a little bit of difficulty initially with the left hand. I actually thought that Tony Kelly's straight left was proving quite effective. It does take Adrian a little while to get used to the range in a fight. We found that in the Randy Costa fight. It wasn't until the beginning of the second round that it felt like he had his timing down. He had his distance management down. He was able to close the distance and land his body shots, create his openings for hooks, work his jab more effectively. I thought Tony Kelly did give him some some issues in the early going. He threw up a couple of high kicks that made me go, oh, you know, that, that that's important because against Randy Costa, Randy was throwing the high kicks out there and it was inhibiting Yanez's ability to slip and counter because he didn't want to fall into a high kick. So he wasn't slipping his head to the sides as much. It limited his opportunities for counter shots. And Tony Kelly came out, put up a high kick and, and kept pumping the straight left and I thought that was really effective. I thought that was a good a good approach to shutting down some of the counter-opportunities for Yanez. But it wasn't long before Yanez would... He was doing really well initially, just kind of feinting his entries, convincing Kelly that he was stepping in, drawing out the lead hook, and drawing out the straight left. And then it was about two and a half minutes in. That's when he started really committing, and he's committing to that right hook around the guard. That shot is money. It's one of the best shots in the band and weight division. It is so, so accurate. And the finishing combination was this three, th- these three right hooks in a row. He throws a right hook, and then Tony Kelly kind of tries to pivot off and tries to, to get out of line of fire, and Yanez just stays with him, pivots with him, and then throws a, another right hook around the guards. The exact same thing happens again after that. Another pivot from Tony Kelly and another pivot from Yanez, and then another right hook around the guard. And, and that's what sat Tony Kelly down. Yanez actually started talking shit. I don't think I've ever seen him talk as much shit as he did at the conclusion of this fight, but he was saying that Tony Kelly was talking trash in the middle of the fight, and that's why he kind of got a bit heated, but he got on the mic, and he, I thought he did a, did a really good job, called out Sugar Sean O'Malley, which they were, Sean O'Malley was actually talking about that fight between the two of them a little while ago, before the Pedro Munoz fight was booked, and that is for, in two weeks' time at UFC 276, so that'll be really interesting to watch how that unfolds. If Sean O'Malley comes out of that fight with a, with a W, I would love to watch him fight Yanez. I think that's a sensational contest. You could probably do that as a, as a fight night headliner. I know Sean, he's made it very clear. I want to fight, you know, the worst competition for the most money right now. I respect that wholeheartedly. <laughs> As someone who is, who is consistently on the side of the fighters and will, will side with them over the promotion. Yeah, I'm chill with that, whatever. But still, the fight fan in me would love to watch those two go at it with, with, the, 
with the high kicking of O'Malley and and the way that he uses the push kicks with both the with both stances, and his his sensational jab from both stances, his counter, his pull counters, I think he would be a really interesting opponent for Yanez at this point in Yanez's career. So I would love to see that fight go down, but hey, you know. You can you can throw all the names in the upper echelon of the bantamweight division into a hat and just pick two of them out at random, and it will make for a banger. I guarantee it. That's how good and how stacked this bantamweight division is. So I don't really mind what happens. They can do whatever. Yanez can fight whatever. I'm just... Oh. It was such an incredibly impressive performance. His left hook to the body, man. It started landing. When it started landing about three minutes in, whoa, took the wind out of me. It's just crazy. Great work from Yanez. And, and Tony Kelly gave him a few issues, was able to come back after he was initially hurt. But yeah, Yanez was just able to weather the storm and and got the work done. And then, I mean, like this this card was just so many finishes, dude. So many finishes. Gregory Rodriguez came out and put down Julian Marquez. Marquez has been on a bit of a run, a bit of a streak recently, if I recall correctly. I'm just having a look. Yeah, oh, he lost that fight to Alessio D. Uh, Shiriko. That was a split decision, but that was back in 2018. Yeah, no, actually, no, it's fine. He won that fight over Maki Patolo, and then that was the one where I believe he called out Miley Cyrus after it. It was a very, very weird call out. I was very confused. I didn't know what was happening. And then he, uh, he rear-naked choked Sam Alvey, so, you know... Congrats to him for that. We we salute you, Mr. Marquez. That said, you you train with James Krause and James Krause. I don't think James Krause is fully on the anti-unionization effort stuff, but he's always putting stuff on his, his Instagram about, you know, sound investment opportunities and, you know, putting all the, the kind of like inspirational motivation stuff that's like, but it's the kind of stuff that really reinforces hyper-masculinity and whatnot. I don't know. I'm probably going to get called a beta male for that comment by some motherfucker. Probably not, actually. No one listens to this shit. But yes. Yeah. This performance was sensational by Gregory Rodriguez. Julian Marquez had nothing for him. The striking here was fucking... was gorgeous from Rodriguez. He's had a couple of decent fights in terms of the hands. I mean, he went to a split decision with Armour Petrosian, and you... Can't do that unless your striking is at the very least adequate. But I thought he looked really good against Dusko Todorovic back in the middle of last year. Prior to that point, he was, you know, he had a contender series loss to Jordan Williams, you know, was shopping around in LFA and all that good stuff. But yeah, I think he's really putting his uh, his striking together. Had a really, the, the initial knockdown actually occurred off of a straight right into a power jab. One of my favorite combinations. Oh, so I'm missing with the jab. I can't seem to cover the distance adequately. All right, well, I will throw the right hand and then, you know, presumably my opponent's probably going to respond to that. They're either going to, you know, pull back or they're going to try and slip that shot. And then from there is when I'm actually going to step in with the jab. And you'll find that because you've turned your hips all the way over for the straight right, or for the rear hand, that is, it can be straight, straight right or straight left, whatever, because you've turned your hips all the way over to, to throw the straight, when you throw the jab, you have to turn your hips back. And because you're turning your hips a little bit further, you actually put a little bit more stank on it. You put a little more, little more power on it. 
and he was actually able to to knock Marquez down from there. And then he followed up and had some really nice rear-hand uppercuts in the middle of combinations. I felt like a lot of his success in this was just predicated on the fact that he was constantly throwing, because Marquez was throwing back a couple of good counters here and there. He was, he was throwing some big hooks back. And I was watching it back, trying to look for the defense, trying to say, oh, you know, how's he slipping? What, what are the ways that he's trying to mitigate this return fire? And I just found that so much of it was simply... Rodriguez was throwing simultaneously to Marquez, and he was throwing with more power. So Marquez isn't landing flush because he's getting his own head snapped back when he's trying to throw punches. You know, trying to throw punches while your head's, you know, getting sent off into the fucking third row, not easy. Not easy to be effective under those conditions. So, yeah, I think that's part of the reason why Gregory Rodriguez had such a sensational performance. This was really impressive. I was really impressed. Yeah, and then we had the fight that pretty much all of the hardcores were super excited for. Kuta Deladze was taking on Ismagulov. Both guys have a whole lot of promise. Kuta Deladze had actually not... He hadn't been in the octagon for a while. He had a victory over Gamrot a couple of years ago. Back in... Yeah, it was 2020. October of 2020. Crazy, man. Been a while. But he's finally back, and... Wasn't able to pick up the victory in this on this occasion. It was a split decision and went to Ismagulov. Incredibly close fight, though. I, I don't think anyone's coming away from this fight going, wow, Ismagulov, bum. Or, wow, fucking Kuta Deladze, trash. No, there's none of that bullshit. I thought both of them looked sensational. Holy shit, I'm actually just looking at... I'm just now looking at Kuta Deladze's record. He was actually set to fight Don Madge twice. What? I didn't realize Don Madge came into the... What? Am I... Oh, yeah, he, he did. I, I completely forgot that Don Madge fought twice in the UFC. He fought against Tay Edwards and Farrar. Very Ziam. Jesus, I butchered that pronunciation. Yeah, no. It was <laughs> Damn. I, I completely forgot that. Anyway, that's completely beside the point. This was a sensational fight. Um, There was some great grappling in this matchup, I thought. There was a really cool little exchange at the end of the fight. Right before there was the illegal knee slash not illegal knee. I don't know. I don't know what side of the fence you stand on. I thought, based on the replays, it didn't look too bad. I thought it looked pretty, you know, it looked okay. But right before that, there was actually a really cool grappling exchange where Ismagulov shot for a single leg, got in on the left leg of Kutadaladze. Kutadaladze switches to a, to the seat belt over the back of Ismagulov and and Ismagulov steps through and kicks out that that standing leg whilst holding on to whilst holding on to the single leg. And I don't know, man. The just Kuta Deladze was quite spread out. He was able to put his his rear leg, his standing leg, quite far back. So you I don't know. I just I was really impressed by the sheer dexterity of Ismagulov in that position. And then Kuta Deladze was able to was able to end up in an advantageous position. He got his leg free, his left leg free from the single leg, and then was able to kind of spin for the back. And then as Mugulov kind of turns into him, gets an underhook on that left side, but ends up giving up a, a good wizard acute to Deladze, who's able to use that to push him down to the ground in combination with a knee slash illegal knee, whatever you want to, you know. Make of it what you will, but yeah, I just thought that was a really sensational grappling exchange, and there was um there was actually a really good bit in the first round as well where Kuta Deladze was actually able to spin out. He took the back very briefly. 
I just, no, you didn't take the back. I think that was the big thing. He he kind of got overzealous with it and thought, oh yeah, I'll take the back, fucking a, and then <laughs> um, and then gave up position. Yeah, here it is. I I just went looking for it because I remembered it being a really cool moment. Yes, so is Magulov and Kutadaladze, they're on the fence. They're both flurrying. Kutadaladze throws a right elbow over the top. And then there's an underhook for his Magulov on the left side. And then it looks like maybe he's going to he's gonna like go underhook on the left side, whizzer on the right side, and step forward with an inside with an inside trip or something, like Henry Cejudo style, and Kutadaladze says, fuck that shit, and then is able to get this this right trip. He trips out that left leg of Ismagulov and then tries to take the back from there and then isn't able to get it. Ismagulov is able to get back in and, and threatens the single leg, and, and they end up going back to the to the feet and standing up but yeah there was just some really cool grappling exchanges on the feet it was fucking gorgeous the head movement from his Mugulov, he slips jabs so goddamn good and he was doing a really good job of bouncing the high kicks off the shoulders or rolling with the high kicks so that they didn't carry the the kind of pop that Kuta Deladze wanted them to I was just so impressed by both men in this instance. I don't really give a shit. I didn't give a shit who won the fight. Ultimately, I was just I was just glad that it was a scrap. It was a really sensational performance from both men. Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just content with with it being a fucking with it with it being a cracker of a contest. You know, I think I scored the first the first round was cute to the lads. I was I was a little split on that second round, but ultimately I thought Ismagulov did a little more effective work. And then that third round, I don't know, just such a tight round. You can really give it to anyone. I don't really give a shit, you know? Sensational fight. Uh, Joaquin Buckley got a victory over Albert Durayev, which was good. I mean, well, not necessarily good. I know I know Durayev has a bit of a... Hmm. Has a bit of an ambiguous vibe in the, the mixed martial arts community. There are a lot of people who are like, you know, fuck that bitch. He's a bad sparring partner. Apparently, he, like, tries to knock motherfuckers out. We don't like that. We don't support that here. But I'll be damned if he's not an entertaining motherfucking fighter. And, uh, yeah. Durayev came out. Was struggling with him for a little bit, actually. But, um, ultimately reverted to the takedowns when he started getting busted up. There was some beautiful shit from the open side here from Joaquin Buckley. He's a southpaw, as we're all quite aware. He was throwing that straight left into a left high kick early on. And that was working a treat. He was he was missing with a lot of shots, though, midway through the first round. But ultimately, I, I thought he was countering the takedown attempts really effectively with the straight left. And ultimately, that's kind of what... It's basically what led to the finish. And the finish being Duraev's left eye. I think it was his left eye. Completely swelled up. Just looked atrocious. Couldn't see shit out of it. So, yeah. That got called, so that's fun, that's cool, good job Joaquin Buckley, good performance. Uh, what's his name, Kevin Holland, got a victory over Tim Means, it was a little bit sad because I do like Tim Means, bit of an old gunslinger, but yeah, no, Kevin Holland, second fight at welterweight, this is coming off of that second round finish over Alex Oliveira, I believe Cowboy has now retired, so, you know, good sending them off into the sunset move there by Holland, and yeah, he uh, <laughs> was doing some some wild shit in this fight, got taken down a couple of times by Means, who in my opinion is a little bit underrated in terms of his grappling, but 
yeah, I thought Holland did a decent job landing that stray rod. Well, he landed a stray rod in the first round that seemed to rock Tim, and then immediately got taken down. So that wasn't ideal. But then he switches it up in the second round and goes around the guard with a right hook instead. And Tim just didn't seem to see it coming at all. And all of a sudden, bada-bing, bada-boom. There was a Darce choke locked in from front headlock as Tim tried to shoot for the takedown. Just really impressive work from Kevin. Looked really calm going for that Darce choke. I didn't think he had it initially, but then it looked... Well, Tim kind of... He moved to his side, and it gave Holland the opportunity to dig that right arm deeper and lock it in properly, and then... Tim was tapping shortly after that. So that's cool. So that's two consecutive finishes on the trot in the welterweight division. And then afterwards, Holland called out Sean Brady. I don't mind that fight for him, actually. I really don't mind that fight for him. I think Sean Brady beats him just because his grappling is relentless, particularly if it's a three-round fight. If it's a five-round fight, I, I, I don't know. I His cardio looked pretty suspect. Brady's did in the Kiesa fight, so... You know, well, we'd it'd be interesting to see how it pans out over the course of a five-round contest, but I don't know. I think that one certainly that favors Sean Brady, but with Holland striking and and gorgeous work with the straight rights, some good kicking in this fight as well. It'd be an interesting matchup, absolutely. All right, I, I could sit here and I could ramble about PFL four for a little while, but realistically, I didn't pay that much attention to it. I don't, I didn't catch it live, and I've, I've seen a couple of the fights, but uh, I, I don't need to ramble on about it much. Besides, I'll, you know, besides Rob Wilkinson picked up another win. I love to see it. I do like Rob Wilkinson. How good? No, I actually want to talk about a boxing, a boxing card that I saw the other day. Uh, it was the Justice Honey card versus Joe Goodall. And it was, a, it was a big old deal here in Australia because for a very extensive period of time, for a very long time, we haven't had any decent fucking heavyweights. So it's just been bums. Yes, it, it's been primarily bums hanging out here in the heavyweight division. But we've got Justice Hooney now, and he's actually kind of, you know, technically interesting. And I, I got to catch that card because I saw it at the pub the other day, and it was pretty interesting. There were, there were some interesting things that went on during this card the main event being one of them, Justice, Justice Honey is a pretty entertaining fighter. Wasn't actually, couldn't really find his mark against Goodall, who is very long and, and honestly quite technically dexterous on the outside. Honey could not find his, his rhythm so much on the outside with the overhand right or the left hook, but on the inside, dude, ooh, he was doing some nice stuff. There was one point, I believe it was, ooh, I'm going to say the, the fourth round, between the fourth and the sixth round, somewhere in that kind of space. There was one point where he landed a left hook and then he bounced off the ropes and then used it to land another left hook. And it was really cool. I just, I like his usage of, you know, rear hand uppercuts and lead hooks when he was on the inside and... You know, he was having issues finding his mark when they were at range, when they were in the middle of the ring. So he adapted appropriately, and he was able to get, I believe he got a unanimous decision, and he won a couple of belts. Won the IBF Pan Pacific, vacant WB Oriental, and WBC Australasian heavyweight titles. How delightful. He is now ranked, I believe. Cause, or he's ranked in the top 10 or the top 15 or something like that. It was, it was a big old deal. Basically, Fox Sports and Main Event were promoting this this fight as 
this is the first, or it is a the biggest heavyweight Australian fight in literally a century. They kept throwing around a century as the figure, which is like, damn, God, this division is fucking barren in this country, if that is the case. Jesus Christ. But, yeah, it was also an opportunity to move up, like, quite significantly in the world rankings. And you're now looking at Justice Honey and... It's potential for him to move up and and challenge some of the you know the decent names in the worldwide heavyweight scene. So that's interesting. That's cool. We love to see it. But I think more significantly, I want to just talk really. Well, there was two fights that that entertained me quite a bit. There was Shamal Ram Anuj was defeated by Luke Boyd, who had been off for a little while. There, Luke Boyd. He's had a couple of injuries in the past few years, and so he hasn't actually, he hasn't fought very much recently. Yeah, and he finally was able to, I mean, he was an amateur boxer, went to the Olympics, had a, had a great deal of success there. Not had a great deal of success there, but, you know, he went to the Olympics, good times. And then he went professional, started racking up a couple of wins. His most recent fight prior to this one, though, was in 2019. It was in December. So it's been a little while, and he finally returned after a couple of years away from the sport and was able to get another victory. He remains undefeated, 10-0, and it was cool. But I, I hadn't really watched much of him. I'd only seen seen highlights of him prior to watching him in this bout, and it was just really funny because he fought exactly like Joseph Benavidez or Henry Cejudo prior to him just you know, embracing that karate, long-bladed stance. You know, do you remember that fight between Henry Cejudo and Joseph Benavidez, which was is a banger. It's a very, very much an underrated fight. That fight is hilarious because both of them, prior to that contest, have always had the same issues in the sense that they kind of get in behind their heads. They drop their heads and they just swing hooks and they swing overhands over the top. And sometimes it can be very successful because they they cover ground very quickly doing that, but it also does mean they headbutt a lot, they end up, you know, hurting themselves with headbutts half of the fucking time, and that's, I mean, it was just hilarious watching Cejudo and Benavidez just kind of crash into each other in the exact same way over and over and over again, banger of a fight, but a, a bit weird in that regard, and Luke Boyd fights in the exact same way, where he drops his head and he swings hooks and he swings overhands like his life depends on it. And additionally, he's also, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, because it's been it's been a been a few days since the actual fight, but if I'm recalling correctly, he fights or fought out of Southpaw, and Anuj was not fighting out of Southpaw; he was fighting out of Orthodox. So you got the open stance matchup, and that in combination with the fact that Luke Boyd drops his head fucking headbutt city, nearly knocks himself out in the first minute and a half, running in, and Anuj drops his level as Luke tries to back him up, as Luke tries to enter into the pocket, he drops his level, and the shoulder of Anuj meets Luke Boyd's chin, and Luke, I mean, he bounces up real quick, he makes sure he, he tells the ref, it's like, yeah, bro, I, it was a headbutt, or it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a clean boxing strike that just dropped me, it was my fucking skull running into his shoulder, which is not a, uh, yeah, not a legal strike, and I was just thinking to myself when that happens, this must happen a lot in training, because he looked like he got fucking sparked by that shot, and he just bounced back up, 
and he knew exactly what had happened. <laughs> so even whilst concussed, he knows. I mean, he's been concussed so many times by shoulders and other people's heads that he's probably acutely aware of what the source of his concussion is. And in that instance, it was uh, it was a shoulder. So that was pretty funny. You got to see KO in the fourth round. That was satisfying. He walked out to, what's that Diddy song? Coming Home. It's always just a terrible walkout song. I don't know why people walk out to it. You really think it's that sentimental, that beautiful? It's not. It's really not. Chris Wyman walks out to it whenever he fights in fucking New York, and he gets knocked out most of the time when walking out to it. So, you know, if that doesn't tell you something, then I don't know what will. And then additionally, there was Francis Whitey. Was He was defeated by Jack Gibb, and I was a... I was a little bit, hmm, a bit on the fence about this fight. This fight was interesting because Francis Waitai clearly had the speed advantage and was countering over the top really effectively initially and then kind of dropped off after the second round. So he had a great first round. I believe he got a knockdown in the first round, so that would give him him a 10-8 in the first, and then I thought he pretty clearly won the second. And then from the third round onwards is when Jack Gipp kind of got his shit together and started putting together really nice combinations, and yeah, I just thought he looked honestly really solid in those final few rounds. He lost by split decision, so it wasn't it wasn't like it was a crazy robbery or anything. It was 58-56 on, actually, I'm now looking at the scorecards here that, that Fox Sports have. It says split decision, but it should be a majority decision. Yeah, it should be majority decision, because what it says here is Fran- Francis Waitai got 58-56 on two cards, and then a 57-57, so a draw on another card, which would make it a majority decision. Congratulations, Fox Sports, you fucking idiots. You have no idea how this sport works. It's delightful. I don't even I don't even cover this sport that much, and I know how it works, you dumbasses. Anyway, yes, there were some interesting things going on in this fight because Jack Gipp was trying to jab to the body. I love a good jab to the body. I'm a big fan of a jab to the body. But this was an open stance matchup. And and there were a lot of open stance matchups throughout the course of this evening. Yeah, this was an open stance matchup. And Jack Gipp was trying to jab to the body. And he did not have the speed to do it initially. Okay? He was dropping his level to jab to the body. And Francis Whitey was trying to come over the ha- over the top with the rear hand. And was countering pretty clean often. So that that's not fun if you're Jack Gipp. And then he kept doing some dumb shit, which just kind of frustrated me. He he stopped doing it in the later rounds because he started pushing the pace. He started getting on the front foot and not allowing himself to be pushed up against the ropes. But earlier on, he got pushed up against the ropes a couple of times and he started jabbing to the body. And already he's being counted in the middle of the ring, throwing the jab to the body. But then it's significantly less useful when you're on the fucking back foot against the ropes because... Think about it. When you throw a jab to the body, you've got to drop your level down. Like, you can't you can't stand tall. You've got to drop your level down so that you can throw your, your, your fist out from the shoulder, you know? We were talking about this the other week when Michael Johnson was, was fighting. I can't remember who he was fighting, actually. When Michael Johnson was jabbing to the body, he wasn't dropping his level and throwing straight. He was punching downwards. And when you punch downwards, then you know your chin is significantly less protected because you don't have a shoulder up next to it. And he was getting counted over the top. Now, I'm not saying that keeping the shoulder up is the fucking cure-all. It prevents any and all offense coming back your way. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying 
you know, it's a defensive measure that you probably shouldn't just fucking abandon. Yeah, so Jack Gipp, he is dropping his level. That's good. We like to see that. His issue is, yeah, he's just, his speed in the center of the ring isn't great. And then when he's on the, when he's on the ropes, he doesn't have the option to pivot off or anything. When you throw, like, a jab, for example, you stand, you've, you're standing quite tall, or you can stand quite tall, and it, it's a little bit easier to pivot off your lead foot. When you drop your level, you kind of have to lengthen your stance by default, because, you know, you're, as you're coming lower, you've got, to, you've got to keep your base centered, and to keep your base centered, you've got to extend your legs out further. It makes it really difficult to shift weight forward onto your front foot so that you can pivot off of it. So that is problematic because it means you can't pivot off to avoid you can't pivot off to avoid any counters. So you're basically your only method of avoiding return fire is it's linear. You have to move backwards. You have to throw the jab to the body and you have to pull back. You can you can try rolling under some return fire, but you got to be real fucking quick for that. And you're gonna you can't you've got to throw the jab and kind of lean inwards if you want to be able to roll underneath after you throw that body jab. So yeah, in the vast majority of circumstances, when you throw the jab to the body, your only course of escape is going to be directly backwards. You throw the jab to the body and you move backwards. You pull back at the hips. And it doesn't fucking work when you're on the ropes, because there are ropes behind you. The whole point of having the ropes there is to contain the fight. So if you have the boundary right behind you, then you don't have an escape. You're just going to pull back, and you're going to end up hitting ropes, and you're going to bounce right back into a fucking fist. And that's kind of what happened a couple of times. Jack Gibson on this jab to the body and then getting countered, because all he can do is move backwards in a straight line, when he's moving backwards in a straight line, Francis Whitey is throwing a fucking right hand down the middle and cracking his ass. Yeah, that was frustrating for the first few rounds. But then, you know, Jack Gipp kind of figured his shit out and then started putting together really good combinations, getting on the front foot, landing his rear hand. Yeah, landing counter hooks when Francis was coming forward. He was he was being active with the counter hooks to maintain pressure and pace. So that was cool. Yes, yeah, so that was a that was an interesting little boxing card. Now I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that we were gonna probably try and talk about the match, but I wanna be honest. I, I've only caught like highlights of it. I can't actually talk about it extensively. I'm thinking I'll probably mention it next week when there is a decent high quality when there is a high quality version, a pirated version sitting around on the internet somewhere that's easily accessible. You know, for the time being, I, I saw the highlight video, and additionally, I saw a version of the fight that was basically just recorded off of a screen. And half of the time, you can't see what's going on. You have no idea what's landing. So yeah, I caught, I caught some highlights here and there. I caught tension knocking down Takaru in the first round, like the first or the last second, essentially, with that beautiful left hook. His hands looked ridiculously fast. Looked ridiculously fast. It, it it did seem like a very, very entertaining fight, but I, I haven't watched it properly, and I feel like I actually need to probably watch it before I provide technical fucking analysis. You know, that seems like a goddamn prerequisite, so I'll avoid that, and I won't talk about that, but yeah. 
I think that pretty much covers everything. Next week in terms of, well, Bellator has a card. Do I care? Not really. Gagar Musasi. Musasi is in the uh, in the main event, I believe. Is it the main event? Wow. Versus Eblen. Whoa, I don't really care. I don't really care, no. Yeah, but there's a decent UFC card, actually. That is the Sarukian versus versus Gamrot card. And there are some other decent things on that one. Shavkat is fighting Neil Magny. Delightful. Giagos is taking on Tiago Moises. I like that. Umar Namagomedov comes back. He's still 14-0. And he's taking on Nathan Maness, who I can't recall off the top of my head, but he's 14-1, so that's delightful. <laughs> Chris Curtis is fighting Rodolfo Vieira, who's obviously incredible Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor, but probably in the mixed martial arts world right now, most famous for getting stopped by Anthony Hernandez last year because he gassed like a motherfucker. But, you know, in July of last year, he had a sensational... Wow, it's been that long, actually. I thought Vieira fought a lot more recently than July of last year. That's absurd. How time flies. Oh, my God, I did not realize Carlos Ulberg is on the card. Ulberg's on the card? What the fuck? That's... Okay. All right. Brian Kelleher is back. He's fighting Mario Batista. Virginia Frey is back. I don't really care. Yeah, there's a couple of fights on this one. It's not too bad. And obviously the main event is a banger. Very excited to see Armin Saruki, and I'm very excited to see his litany of takedowns. I mean, he is just such an exciting prospect. Great work from the body lock. Sensational single leg. Can shoot the double leg when necessary. Great scrambling ability. Hits a peak out like, you know, he's been doing it since he came out of the fucking womb, which I'm, I'm he probably has been, honestly. So, you know. And his striking's been getting so much better. He fights, if I recall correctly, he fights Southpaw, doesn't he? Does he fight Southpaw or Orthodox? I can't recall. I just remember in the Islam fight, well, uh, he probably fights Orthodox because I think it was an open stance matchup between Islam and him. And Islam fights Southpaw, so whatever. But but Sarukian has a, has a gorgeous rear, rear leg high kick. And I think his hands have been getting a lot better over the past few fights. Gamrot, I haven't watched as much of. Incredibly scrambly, though. Very exciting in the grappling department. I'm just really excited to watch this fight go down. It's actually crazy, the the age differential. It's six years. Sarukian is still only 25. I keep forgetting this motherfucker is only 25. It's absurd. He's also 1.7 meters. He's only 170 centimeters tall. Which, I mean, it's probably just con- that just contributes to his jacked status. But yeah, he's coming off of who did he most recently beat? Joel Alvarez. That was a sensational performance on his part. Looked great doing that in a, in a fight which was, looked at least on paper, looked like a pretty difficult test. You know, and, and prior to that, he's been beating guys like Giagos, beat Frivola, you know, beat Davi Ramos back in 2020. That's a really good win. And then, you know, he had that uh, that lost to Islam Makashev in his UFC debut back in 2019, but then he bounced back and defeated uh, Oliver Aubin-Mercier, who actually got a win this weekend, over in PFL. We love to see it. We are a big fan of Mr. Aubin-Mercier. He was fighting, not Don Madge, Roush Manfio. That's it. So, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good win on his part. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see Armin Saruki, and I'm very excited to see Gamrot. Yeah, I think it's going to be a sensational main event. Should be a Decent card, at least. 
Anyway, I'll wrap this up. Jesus Christ, getting getting long. It was just a really good card, so I had to talk about every single goddamn fight on it. Not much about the main event, but, you know, you get what you get. Wow, yeah. Alright, have a good week. I'll catch you later after this card. Hopefully it's decent and we can all have a good old chat about it. Thank you. Bye.